and welcome to episode six of Can I Borrow Your Mind? I've just been watching the US presidential debate and fuck, I don't know if anyone else listening to this has just been watching that, but it feels very apocalyptic (laughs) watching these two guys sort of childishly bicker about things that will affect the lives of millions of people. Um, if you Thanks for listening to this episode. If you'd like to know more about America and American politics, I recorded an episode of this podcast a couple of weeks ago with Chaz Licciadello. He's the host of Planet America on the ABC, and he's a real expert on American politics. We chatted about Trump um, and about this election and also about the 2016 election and how Trump won it and, and sort of who Trump is as a person and as a cultural icon and, and the way that he operates. I think it's really interesting. So go have a listen to that episode but listen to this one first um that's i mean you've got this far now so you may as well listen to this one first i think this is a really great episode this week i got to speak to a man called sean dooley sean is he works for bird life australia he's an absolute expert on birds um and really just an expert on nature and the environment um specifically in australia in 2002 sean broke the record for seeing the most amount of species of bird in Australia in a year. He like he went on this like twitching extravaganza and saw 703 different species of birds in one year in Australia. Um, and he wrote a book about it called The Big Twitch. <laughs> and so we spoke about that. It's a crazy achievement. And he's just so, he knows so much about nature and the environment. So we chat about climate change, of course, the bushfires, you know, plastic in the ocean, all these big threats that are facing animals around the world, not just in Australia. And it's really, I think it's a really fascinating podcast. And I think you learn a lot. I learned a lot speaking with him. Um, also, just about the way that animals operate, especially within Australia and the way that they all, uh, sort of are linked together. It's it's really fascinating. Um, I think you'll enjoy it. Uh, Sean, I'll just give you a few of his credentials or whatever. He's you'd probably you could hear him on ABC Radio. He's on there quite regularly. He's on he's on radio all all around the country quite regularly. Um, he writes for the Age and the Guardian. He is the editor of the BirdLife Australia magazine and he works for Bird BirdLife Australia and he's also a comedy writer. He wrote on shows like Spicks and Specks, Hamish and Andy, uh, Full Frontal. He's worked with people like Sean McAuliffe and Mick Malloy, um, Jane Kennedy. He's had like a, a big career in the comedy world. He's got a really interesting story and then he's, he's also, you know, been dedicated to birds um and nature and the environment so he also yeah he speaks really well um and he's got a very pleasant way of speaking so i think yeah he's the ideal podcast guest i think you'll learn a lot i think we should just get straight into it um i recorded this from the lands of the kulin nation i want to pay my respects to the wurundjeri and the bunurong people um their elders past present and emerging um And the intro music for this podcast is done by a Melbourne band called Silt, who everyone should check out. Enjoy the podcast. This is episode six of Can I Borrow Your Mind with this week's guest, Sean Dooley. (laughs) 
Hey, can I ask you about your book, The Big Twitch? I believe in 2001, I believe you, you spent the year trying to see, t- trying to break the record for the most birds seen in a year in Australia. Is that correct? Yeah, it was, well, it was actually 2002. Right. Um, it was, yeah, I essentially took a year off. Um, the circumstances of that was, I, t- I took a year off to, fulfill a childhood dream. By that time I was in my early 30s and realised I was never going to kick the winning goal for Collingwood in the grand finals. <laughs> uh, my other childhood dream had been a bit of a weird one, um, which was to try and see as many, to try and break the record for seeing the most number of birds in Australia in one year. And I'd read about it when I first joined what was then the Bird Observers Club. That was one of the organisations that merged uh, in 2012 to become bird life australia and as this 11 year old kid there was an old guy i did get to meet once um called called roy wheeler he basically in that stage his wife had died he was in his 70s and he did he'd been the main bird guy in australia and he did this sort of victory lap of honor traveling around visiting people um and they all put him up and he went bird watching and then halfway through the year someone said hey you could actually see you could see more birds in one year than anyone's ever seen. So he decided to chase that record. And I was reading the instalments of this. And for me, it was just a simple list of birds. Like, you know, I went, you know, I I went to Perth and I saw a red capped parrot and a Western thornbill. And and for me, that was like Tolkien, you know, I was going, whoa. (laughs) Um, So I always had that lodged in my mind. And then when I, throughout at the end of my uni days, and in the start of my first half of my comedy career, I was sort of juggling also my parents getting sick and they both, they both had cancer in the 80s, which they survived. Then they got different cancers in the 90s, which ended up killing them. So I'm sorry. 90s period nursing at various stages, both my mum and my dad, um, as they succumbed to cancer. So by 2001, my dad had died in 2000 and, you know, the inheritance had come through and I didn't know what I was going to do. I was a bit lost. I was grieving. I was sort of, you know, renting in the inner city and really didn't know what I was going to do. So instead of um, getting a house in the burbs, you know, putting a deposit on a house, which, um, you know, which would have been advisable because it was just before the property boom, (laughs) I bought a four-wheel drive and thought I'm going, I'm going bush for a year. Wow. Um, so yeah, so I, I did that. I did that attempt, and I actually broke the record uh, and saw 703 species. It was then fucking hell. Australia and the offshore islands, um, and that, that record, the the taxonomy that they use now would be different, but still was the the record at the time, and um, held up for about ten years before wow. someone. With even less sense and even more money. <laughs> That's so crazy. There's a few things I want to unpack about this. Um, yeah. But f- just firstly, just quickly, um, I think it's uh, – it, I, I want to ask you about sort of the grieving process in relation to birds. I saw a YouTube video of you recently um, in the time of COVID. I think it was like maybe a live stream that you were doing for BirdLife Australia and you were talking about how you'd been doing media 
um, and and radio and people. A lot of people had been phoning in and saying, "Are oh, other birds acting strangely at the t- at this time?" Because yeah. people were noticing that birds were acting differently. And really, what was going on was the birds were acting normally, but people were noticing it more. And when I heard that, I. I, that really resonated with me because I've, you know, like everyone, I've been feeling a bit strange in this COVID time and, you know, I'm not, I'm not grieving my parents. So it's obviously not as full on as what you were going through in that time. But in this time for me, looking at birds and watching birds behavior has been really cathartic. Um, do you, yeah. do you find that? And, and why, why do you think that is? Why do you think it's so comforting to, mm. to watch birds and stuff? Yeah, it's something that I've really noted. It's a it's a phenomenon that's that's genuinely happening with a lot of people. And at first, I thought, well, maybe this is just me. You know, I've always been the nerd, bird nerd. I've always found having having a bird sound soundtrack like birds provide the soundtrack to your life, and it's like yeah. orients me. It, it it makes me feel I know where I am in the world, and I it gives me almost a sense of of some sort of ability to order the world in that I can understand, and, and this is what the attraction for the big twitch was, was putting what was then 20 years of knowledge about where birds should be and the habitat they're in and where they occur. And going around Australia and using birds as the prism through which to kind of connect. That's so cool. That, that's always been strong for me. And, and in the outbreak of the pandemic, I was sort of thinking, oh, maybe that's just me that's, like lying there, I, like a lot of people, I think I was, I, I was sleeping all right, but I was waking up really early and I'd be lying there in the dark and having those bleak thoughts about, you know, apocalyptic thoughts. And, you know. <laughs> and then you'd hear the, the first magpies start calling and then the noisy miners, which are kind of trash birds in a way. They're, they're, they've invaded the suburb and they're, they're sort of everywhere um, and they, they drive out other birds, but they're kind of charming in their own way. Uh, but I'd hear those birds and just a whole cacophony of cockatoos and lorikeets and, and wattle birds and things like that, and that would actually fill my, fill my spirits. Yeah. Um, dark well was filled with a bit of light. And, yeah. okay, this could just be me and it could just be the people I'm working with because we're experiencing that. But, yeah, once people went into lockdown in particular, we started getting flooded with inquiries about what's going on with the birds, but also lots of people wanted to share what they'd seen and what they were experiencing, whether they knew what the birds were or weren't, like people going, what the hell is this amazing bird? But a lot of people who did know the birds, noticing what they were doing and just getting this real sort of a sense of joy and delight in, in an otherwise miserable time. But also I, I, I get this feeling that the birds are, for us, and, and has always been, it's almost ingrained in us genetically um, that birds are like, and at the moment they're like the messengers from the outside world. Like every day, the, you know, the sun would rise and the birds would be there singing in the dawn. And, and it was almost like the, 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 this reassurance that, yes, the world is going on. And totally. No matter what's happening. And I, I reckon a lot of people have tapped into something like that and we've seen this boom in being interested in bird watching or even just noticing things because they're quiet because people are quiet for the first time in their working lives and you know there's less traffic noise there's less commuting you have to do you're in the one spot you 
getting a sense of the seasons and, and birds really um, articulate what's happening in the seasons. So yeah. I reckon there's, there's something to that. I think that's so beautiful. I, 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 I sort of liken it to the bird sounds in the morning. Um, it's similar. It's, it's like this primal thing and sort of you touched on it there of like, you know, since humans have existed, we would have always woken up to the sound of birds. So, of course, it's going to make you feel this when you really notice it. And, and there's a lot of negatives with the pandemic, but I think it's so important to look at some positives. And one mm. positive, I think, is that, yeah, people are more in touch with those things. I, I get the same feeling, and I'm sure you had this on that year when you were driving around in your four-wheel drive. One time I was with my ex-girlfriend and we went camping and we got our campfire lit and she said something I thought that was really poignant to me. She said, that feeling that you get when you get the campfire lit and you're sitting here and it's all cold and dark and silent and the fire is lit, that feeling inside you makes me think mm. that we shouldn't be living in cities and being on computers every day and stuff. It's, <laughs> not, it's, not, it's not really how we get nourished as people. There's, and I think the birds is the same. I think there's something about listening to that noise that's so nourishing. Yeah, yeah. And there's, there's been a lot of research in the last few years on, on the impact, the psychological, even the physiological impact of hearing bird songs. And that they say there's studies like with kids in hospital, if they, if they play bird, bird calls, they have less fear when they're getting injections and stuff. And wow. Play bird calls in hospital wards on average that patients are discharged a day earlier on average. Wow. The, the sort of the theory behind it is, you know, often that they'll play music to relax you or something, but music is the syncopation and rhythm of, of, of uh, human-created music is, is tied into the, you know, the, 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 um, the, the, the orchestral structure, you know, the, the way we construct sound, whereas... Bird call is far more random. Uh, it's not easily to notate a lot of bird calls in, in in a typical sort of stave or treble clef or whatever it is. Yeah. And because it's got that randomness, but it's not it's not jarring. But but it's so it's a constant thing. And and I actually reckon there's something to it that when you think about it, if we were in the bush, you know, ten hundred thousand years ago. As soon as the birds stop calling, you know there's danger. Um, that's an innate thing. So in a wow. world where you don't have birds around you, it could be the whole package of nature being in fresh air and in trees and vegetation, but I think there's something particular about the bird song that birds usually only shut up when, when they're, you know, packing themselves because there's a predator around. That's so fascinating. Yeah, that, that's my personal take on it. Uh, would a lack of birdsong probably is potentially releasing the stress hormones, whereas when the birds are calling, everything's kind of Definitely. okay. Yeah, yeah, and that makes sense with the the kid, the people getting released out of hospital earlier. Um, I think that's so fascinating. I, so, uh, yeah, I, I really want to uh, – there's so much I want to talk about now, but that year – can can you even just tell me your route around Australia? Because I'm really interested in where you set off to, and and was there yeah. any birds in particular that you were really aiming to see? And did you see what was the most some of the most exciting things that happened? Yeah, sure. Right that year. Um, well, I 
I was, um, my strategy was to base myself in Melbourne for the first half of the year and I would do just short trips. So it was either where, where I could drive from Melbourne or I would do, you know, like I did a 10-day trip to Brisbane, like flew to Brisbane and went and to coincide with some boat trips and stuff. Yep. And the second half of the year was basically getting the four-wheel drive and essentially I ended up driving around Australia twice. Um, the wow. first, first half of the year I did trips to Tassie, to Norfolk Island, Christmas Island, uh, Perth and Brisbane, like just short trips. The second half I went up through the centre then back down into South Australia and up the Streslecky track through Western Queensland, up to Cape York, did a cruise around on the Torres Strait, then back wow. down the East Coast and then to Tassie again. And then I had a brief break and back in Melbourne and then started again, um, essentially drove up to Sydney to go out to Lord Howe Island and then went all the way around Australia driving clockwise around the coast and ending up in Darwin and then back in Cape York and Queensland at the end of the year. It's amazing. So it was something like 80,000 Ks of driving, <laughs> thousand flying and 2,000 on boats or something. It's <laughs> like um, insane. Yeah, and in terms of birds, like it was trying to see all of them. The previous record was 633. And I knew that if I went to the offshore islands, which the previous guy hadn't, Places like Christmas Island and Norfolk and stuff, then mm. I could probably break 700, which I ended up doing on Christmas Eve up on a, on a mountain in North Queensland called, um, called Mount Lewis where I finally, after, after three attempts that year and seven attempts previously in my life, I finally found a bird called a blue-faced parrot finch. Wow. Um, but that actually probably was almost anticlimactic. I had, yeah, I saw some amazing birds and sights. Some that stuck in my head were one of the ones that was most, I was most happy to see was a bird. It was on Cape York. It was a bird called a red goshawk, which is a really elusive and rare tropical um, bird of prey. And I'd never seen one before. And it was, again, the actual circumstance was, the reason I remember it was pretty anticlimactic. Somebody had told me about where there was a nest over the roadside just near a town called Cohen on Cape York. And I'd come back from further up in Cape York, and that was amazing, up in the Iron Range rainforest and seeing all these New Guinea species that can't make it to Australia. Wow. I really, that was one of my favourite spots to be. But coming back, and and it was it was almost like ticking by numbers. It was drive six kilometres north of this lodge on this road, and over the road you'll see the tree. And so I did, and I parked about two hundred metres away, not to scare the bird, and set up the scope and looked at. It was a massive female bird on the nest, really rare bird. But was a basic thing, but it was something about seeing that bird that had always seemed so elusive. I'd looked for it previously in places like Kakadu and never found one. And, and I, I suddenly had, was filled with this joy of the bird and just looking at it so closely for, through the telescope. And it kind of knew I was there, even though I was 200 metres back. It was just eyeballing it through the scope and just was filled with this exuberant love of what I was doing and, and it made me feel like I could actually break the record at that point. I was getting, oh, I don't know if I'll be able to do it, but I just was just energised by it. It was such a 
great moment. But there was, yeah, there were so many others, but that one sticks out for, for bizarre reasons, just the way it made me feel. That's amazing. Yeah. I, and- I, that area, um, that's how I sort of got into bird watching. I didn't go up as far as Cape York, but I went to far North Queensland um, yeah. a, about a year a year ago, and that's when oh. I started getting into it. It's just amazing. Like there's so oh, many. Oh, it's incredible. Yeah. And, yeah, there's this. I hadn't been there from the big twitch. I didn't go back to North Queensland for about eight years, seven or eight years. And when I got back, I was just gobsmacked again the exuberance of bird life up there in the diversity but also just in the sheer number of things like you go to a wetland and you know there's there'll be or even you know there'll just be hundreds of egrets whereas in a wetland in melbourne you know in a good year you'll get 20 egrets yeah it's just that it is. It's an incredible place. Yeah, it's 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 a beautiful, beautiful part of the world. Um, yeah, because I was going to ask you about that that adrenaline rush of seeing an elusive bird, and I sort of wanted to ask you about the the difference between seeing something that I find interesting is, for example, rainbow lorikeets, mm-hmm. like. If you had never seen one of those before in your life and you saw one, you'd, I think you'd be gobsmacked. But yeah, I'm, I, don't, I don't even bat an eyelid when I see them. Does that, like, does that ever almost annoy you that like, some birds, it just in your own head, you, you make a big deal out of them and other birds you don't because they're so common? Or, or is that just, that's just mm. the nature of bird watching, I suppose? Yeah, I suppose it's that difference between bird watching and twitching or listing, you know, where you're trying to see the next new bird. And I think it's, you know, a natural human sort of condition that, that you, you, you find more pleasure in the exotic and, and yeah. the new. Um, there's a, you know, there's something exciting about the first time for anything. Yeah. And, yeah, and the rainbow lorikeet, like, it's been, they are the most incredibly coloured bird. Like, <laughs> And we take them for granted. And I remember, and perhaps birdwatchers themselves are the worst culprits because they see them so regularly they don't, they fail to notice how stunning yeah. they are. But I remember being the, one of the first times I, I was up in Cairns actually um, and I was on the Esplanade at Cairns, which, uh, which is a brilliant birding area. People... Tourists go, they expect white beaches on Cairns and they don't at Cairns, they, they have this mud flat, but it, it's what it's a it's one of the best shorebird observation areas in the world. Wow. It's a big mix of hundreds, sometimes thousands of migratory shorebirds. And they get come right up to the uh, edge of the shore as the tide comes in. It's it's normally you sort of have to see them out on they're out, you need telescopes, you need to wade through you know, boggy mud flats and stuff to see them. And they're right on your doorstep there. So it's an internationally famous bird watching mecca. Wow. Hanging out there um, when I was traveling through. And I saw these two young blokes, and they're basically skinheads. Um, and they had all the gear, they had binoculars and telescopes. And they were looking not out at the mud flats, but up in the Bougainvillea tree. And I wondered, oh, Maybe they've seen a rufous owl or something really exciting. So I sort of wandered over. 
And I'm looking and they, they're just looking at, there was some fig birds and some rainbow lorikeets. And, and I sort of said, ah, oh, you birders. And I said, yeah, yeah. And I turned and one of them, like these actual skinheads from England, had these British accents and they had tats and stuff, <laughs> you know, but like shapes. You would have thought they were soccer hooligans. And they come turned to me and I saw one and he had tears streaming down his <laughs> Are you all right, mate? And I don't know if you can swear on this podcast. Yeah, you right. can. You can. Absolutely. He's going, look at that. Look at that fucking bird. He's going, we don't have fucking nothing like that back. And he was just, he was in weeping tears of joy at, the, um, at these birds. And it was the rainbow lorikeet. And wow. It really, that really hit me. That was profound because I went, oh, yeah, by that stage, I'd seen hundreds of them even in Melbourne, they, they become pretty common. And, mm. and yeah, it really hit me. Like, oh, God, we really, we really do have something special here. Like yeah. Just travelled around the world and rather than be sitting in the pub boozing on, um, <laughs> just weeping tears of joy. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's, that sums my point up so well. And now every time I see a rainbow lorikeet, I'm going to think about the skinhead crying because yeah. like, that really sums it up. They are. They're, they're stunning birds. Um, Okay, I've got a question about, so when you're going around looking at birds, um, like obviously you're out in nature heaps. This is something I've thought about at, at certain times in my life. I've always, I've only recently started getting into bird watching and twitching, um, but I've always enjoyed going for hikes and I've always just got a real thrill when I see any animal and I love seeing animals in the wild and it's just something I've always been into. And I've, I feel like some days you go on a hike and at the start of the hike, you might see a kangaroo or you see something cool. You see like a wombat. And then that hike, you'll hike for six kilometers or seven kilometers and you're seeing everything, kookaburras, this, that, blah, blah, blah. It's just like one of those days. And then other days you'll go on a hike and you see nothing. And mm. I guess I'm just wondering if there's any sort of, am I just um, being uh, superstitious or is there some sort of scientific thing about like, even if you, if you were on like the, the Victorian coast and you saw a whale, I feel like that would be the same day that you'd also see a strange bird. Like, I, I don't know, for me, it's like you see a lot of animals all at once and then you go days yeah. where you don't see anything. Is that just, am I just noticing that and it's not a real phenomenon or is that something that is a thing? Uh, no, no, I, I I think there's something to it um, for two reasons. One, especially in Australia, the in the landscape we have, it's a pretty, you know, poor soils, hot, generally arid conditions. So animals do it tough. Um, vegetation does it tough. So what, what a lot of our stuff has evolved that we have, we we don't have the marked seasons in a way that they do in North America. Uh, so we don't have as much visible migration of birds because there's no way those small birds can live um, right. America or Northern Europe in winter. So they have to migrate. Whereas here we have more nomadic birds or wandering birds. And we do have migrants, bush birds, especially birds that go to Queensland or New Guinea and then come back down. But we, a lot of our birds follow the resources and, and what will happen, whether it's, whether it's water birds and swamps that fill up over the drought and flooding rain sort of boom and bust cycle. The same thing happens in the bush too. You'll get good years and bad years, but also you get patches that are 
because of whatever reason, um, the trees will flower. And flowering trees and birds is a unique, um, the, the, the correlation between them is unique in Australia. Like nowhere else in the world do are birds as important pollinators of trees as um, is in other places. In other places it's either wind or insects or or in the tropics, say, flying foxes and things. But in Australia, so many of our trees, like the eucalypts, banksias, um, bottle brushes, those things, they rely on birds pollinating them. Right. Honey eaters, but also these other nectar-feeding birds. And then all the birds are attracted by the insects that are attracted by the profuse blooms. So you get these seasonal times where you get heaps of birds around and wildlife and then other times where it's as as dead as a doornail. In the that same makes habit. sense, yeah. But even aside from that, especially in the times when it's, when it's uh, not productive, which can be winter in some areas or it can be drought or whatever, you actually also get this other phenomenon that happens with birds and some other animals, but in Australia mainly it's with birds. You, you get the, what are called bird waves and it happens in the tropics a lot, but it also happens here, especially in winter, where the birds of different species tend to band together and move through habitat together. And you really notice it walking in the coast in winter. You'll, you'll see nothing for an hour and then suddenly you're just surrounded by yeah. chirping and flying about and delving under bark and under in the leaf litter and up in the leaves and then they'll be gone. And it's these mixed feeding flocks that, that come through in waves and they're what we think happens is that they all, by having all of the different types of birds together, they often pick a different niche to, um, to feed in, like some, like, say, tree creepers forage under the bark of trees, whereas others, like, say, a buff-front thornbill is going to be foraging mainly on the ground and a striated thornbill will be in the foliage. And mm-hmm. they're eating different things, finding different nooks and crevices to find food. But what they, we think happens is if they move all together they disturb stuff looking for their own prey. They're disturbing the other bird's prey. So, so it, it does. So cool. You, you do get that sense, especially in a lot of our forests and, and coastal woodlands and stuff. You, you will get birdie days and non-birdie days and even bird hours and non-birdie. Yeah, hours. exactly. It's, it's so cool because it's, 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 I love that. Um, I love that thing of everything being connected. It's like everything has a little role yeah. and those birds will stir up stuff inadvertently for the other birds. I think that's, that's yeah. so cool. And I guess that's why it's so important that humans uh, understand that we're connected to this ecosystem as well and everything that we do has an impact. And um, just on that, I wanted to ask you your um, about the, the, the shearwater birds I mentioned in oh, my yeah. email on, on Griffith Island um, in, in Port Ferry, there's, I, I've, I've just read up on this a little bit in the last few months. Um, there's, I, my understanding is that there's these shearwater birds that migrate every year from Alaska to Port Ferry in w- Western Victoria, and they all land on this sort of island, this outcrop, um, and then that's where they do their breeding and they spend our summer here and then they go back to Alaska. And one of the things that I read said for the last 30 or 40 years, they've always arrived either on the same day, so like say it's September 20th or something, or 
between two or three days of that day. Like they're very, they're like clockwork. Um, this yeah. year, I think they were over a month late. And mm. then I think when they did finally arrive, their numbers were a lot smaller. Um, and I've just, I don't know anything about this, but I've just read about this and the stuff that I have read, it's just worried me a bit. Um, and I, fi- yeah. I find it quite scary. Do you have an explanation or, or an idea of what's going on? Uh, yeah, it, I, I find it really um, quite scary as well, actually. And the, the, the experts are, I wouldn't even say divided. I think most experts are still saying, no, it's nothing, it's not as apocalyptic as it seems. However, I, I, I'm not quite sure on that and haven't seen the data to show what those impacts have been, but it's, to me, what's happening with our shearwaters, in particular the, the species we get down in Victoria and Tasmania, the short-tailed shearwater, it's really a, a, a sort of flagging this, this ecosystem collapse that we could be facing. And it was interesting that we had that phenomenon last year just before we, well, as the bushfire season started. Yeah. And what, what happens if this, the short Shearwater, or people might know it as the mutton bird, they were and probably still are the most common Australian seabird. Like there were literally hundreds of millions, if not billions of them. Um, like Matthew Flinders um, talked about when he was in Bass Strait in like the late 1700s, early 1800, whenever it was, he wrote in his diary about them blackening the sky for wow. time as they went back to their nesting burrows. They still, until recently, and the figures haven't been updated, they were still quoted as being Australia's most common seabird, something like 20 million short-tailed shearwaters. And essentially Bass Strait's the, the key area. They, they breed as far north as New South Wales and also a few breed in WA. But... They come back in their millions and what it's, it's an arduous journey. Like they're incredible birds. They've, now they put satellite trackers on some of them. The, the journeys are even more incredible. What they do is they'll leave the burrow, uh, the nest in say March, and the adults fly across the Pacific sort of, I think up the Japan side and then up to the Bering Strait and then across to Alaskan waters spend the winter up in the Bering Strait, and then they head back across the Pacific in almost like a big figure of eight sort of thing. But even what's massively interesting and and amazing is that they leave the chicks still in the burrows, flightless, because the chicks are so fat, they've been fed up so big, they don't get fed for a month and they just lose that body fat and they get their adult feathers. And then the chicks follow the parents. Oh, wow. And they manage to hook up with the with the rest of the adults. So they know innately where to go. Yeah. Oh yeah. my which god! Is, which is That's phenomenal, incredible. And but what it means because it's such a common species, such an arduous journey, you would always lose birds along the way. Right. And so it's a lot of the juvenile birds in April taking a wrong turn at Albuquerque and just hanging <laughs> there hundreds of thousands at times. And we see this experience where this phenomenon where it's called a, a seabird wreck. That's where because of 
unfavourable wind conditions or currents and they can't get their food or whatever, they get exhausted and battered by the wind and they end up either flying inshore and dying in their hundreds or thousands or even just washing up. And it, hap- it sort of happens regularly. Probably most birds die well out at sea and we never see them. Yeah. It's, they die near the coast. And it does happen regularly, but it was really, it's like coral bleaching. It was a really rare natural event. Like it would happen mm. in years or so. I think even there's very few reports in the early 20th century of it happening. So it was maybe once every 30 years. In the last 20 years, it's happening every couple of years. And uh. and, and it's happening here as they arrive back, but also it's happening in North America, off Alaska and California, especially the last couple of years. And last year, it was devastating the amount of seabirds that died up there. It was, and we think it's global warming because it's sending these birds rely on cold water fish, and the cold water fish are either he- heading further north or they're heading deeper, where where the where the water's colder in the ocean. So the birds who dive after the fish can't dive far enough to get them. Right. So the last couple of years in the West coast of America, you were getting hundreds of thousands of, of water, uh, seabirds washing up, including these migratory shearwaters. Last year was a massive wreck there. And then we didn't have a wreck as such, but they just never showed up. And like you said, the shearwater was like clockwork when it t- returned to its breeding um, colonies. And then places like Griffith Island, it, they just never showed. For a lot of places, they're only two weeks late, but I think, yeah, Griffith was close to a month. Yeah. Really concerned. We were raising issue, raising it as an issue last year at BirdLife. But talking to some of the bird researchers since, they said in a lot of the breeding colonies, the birds did eventually arrive and the numbers weren't drastically lower. It's a colony by colony proposition, but I, I still think it sounds a real warning about what we're doing across the planet. And seabirds also have to cope with two other major stresses that are killing them in their millions. And one is long line fishing and other commercial fishing where they're getting tangled up in nets or on hooks uh, on those long lines. And the other one is plastic in the ocean, a whole lot of yeah. bird, like the mutton birds, the, the shearwaters chasing fish and little jellyfish and things under the water. They're seeing the flash of what they think is a fish and also apparently gives off the chemical odour, these, these bits of plastic that float around. You know, we, we know that great Pacific gyre, the garbage patch, um, that, that's like about the size of Texas in the Pacific Ocean. And, and we could say that's terrible, but all, all that big stuff is not so much the problem. It's when it breaks down into what they call nurdles um, the smaller the pieces of plastic are, the more likely they're to be ingested by, if not the birds themselves and the fish and sea creatures that they eat. Right. So, and, and we've seen studies on places like Lord Howe Island where the researchers have found, you know, it's 700 k's from the nearest big city and yet some of the chicks have their gut filled with, um, with plastic. Because oh, my God. It's a diving and picking up stuff and then regurgitating it to the young. That's how they feed them, charming birds. <laughs> and so they regurgitate all this sort of fish meal that they've processed in their stomach, but they're regurgitating bits of plastic as well. And so you're getting these seabird chicks with stomachs full of plastic and it's not poisoning them. It's, it's just they can't pass it. And 
it's not giving them enough room to, to have enough food that they can thrive. So a lot, a lot of them are dying. So you've got that triple threat, but I think the, these big wrecks that we're seeing are, are certainly a, a really strong indication that climate change is kicking in and hard. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, 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 we could, there's so many areas we could go to from here and there's, I could talk to you for hours about this, but I, I, I've taken up a lot of your time. I think we should um, do the bushfires. Uh, if, if yeah. I, I'd just like to ask you, um, yeah, obviously everyone knows about the, the bushfires of last summer in Australia. Everyone knows they were, you know, the worst, the worst thing ever. Um, and I'd just like to know from a bird perspective, are you even able to tell the impact that those fires had yet? And if so, what, what sort of impact are you seeing? And is it, yeah. is it really doom and gloom? Um, and, yeah. It's pretty devastating and it's an understatement. Like, for me, the impact of the bushfires has had a much more profound effect on my spirit and optimism for the future than, than the impact of COVID. I kind of feel like, you know, as long as me and my family don't get COVID and you know, within a few years, things will return back to nor- to a new normal and, you know, we'll, we, we as a species, as a society, will bounce back. You know, it's happened before with the Spanish flu and other, and other economic setbacks. But what's really shaken my, um, you know, the, the bushfires really shook my, my, my view of the future profoundly. Uh, it sort of confirmed what what I felt, but it was such a convulsive thing because it was so overwhelming. Um, I, I expected something like this to happen, but not not now, not not yet. Yeah. And we know the impact of the bushfires on birds. We, we've been hampered by COVID because we haven't been able to get our staff at BirdLife and also our volunteers who really supply so much of our information about the impacts of birds. And I was starting to get out with some of our staff earlier before the restrictions came in. I, I was part of a, our Woodland Birds team. I accompanied them on the first post-fire visit to the Gosper Mountains fire out sort of, we, we went in from the Newcastle end, but that's the massive fire that, that burnt the whole Blue Mountains. Yeah. Um, you know, and that was just incredible, the, the scale of those fires. And we know... From all this data that we have from our bird life researchers and, and particularly our bird life volunteers, you know, the 20 years plus of, of uh, bird surveys that we have, hundreds of thousands of bird surveys in our database. So we knew where the birds occurred and we, we did a big piece of work at bird life overlaying the, the fire zones and getting as much information about the severity of the fires and the extent on the known occurrence of all these birds and birds that we just never had any concerns about most famously the lyre bird which is actually hard to see but a very common bird throughout the forests of eastern australia 40 percent of there's three subspecies of the superb lyre bird and between them on average it was about 40 percent of their habitat was was impacted by these bushfires that's in one and in the past we've always had fires and you hear that that those jerky comments, oh, you know, we always have fires. Mm-hmm. And nature's adapted to it. Well, yes, but we always had places that didn't burn as well. Yep. And we, there's so much evidence for that that, you know, um, the fact we have 400-year-old mountain ash trees 
the regenerate after fire says they only could be there because there hasn't been a fire for 400 years. Yeah. And so in the past, somewhere would burn and be devastating for the wildlife there, but there would be refuges in that area that didn't burn and the adjacent areas that didn't burn where the animals and plants and everything can recolonise and regenerate. And this time, when you've got fires like in East Kippsland that went for 150 kilometres, there's almost nowhere left for, for birds to come, come from to re, repopulate those areas as they regenerate. That's if they regenerate. And so, yeah, it's been just a profound, profoundly devastating impact. But having said that, we, you know, from the, even from when I went up to the Gosper Mountain fire, and that was, I think it was six weeks after that fire had been out and it had burnt for six weeks anyway or longer. So this was in February um, early February, I think, and the fire got put out around Christmas. Uh, even there in this charred landscape, like I, I remember we, we stopped at this one camping ground and it was sort of up on a ridge and everything was burnt, but there were, a few, there were actually a couple of birds around and they were sort of honey eaters and things, so you're thinking, well, maybe they've come in from an unburnt gully or they could have come in from 20 k's away. But there was... We were looking at those and then suddenly there was a family party of a little tiny bird called a variegated fairy wren. Mm -hmm. um, it's one of the blue wrens that people would know. They're a bit more, not as common, like you don't get them in Victoria except in the Mallee. Um, but they're, they're sort of along the coast of New South Wales and, and they're a bit more of a forest bird and, and stuff. And, and they're tiny. They're about, I think they weigh about nine grams 10 grams maybe at the most, like just these little tiny birds that are more yeah. tiny bird. And there was a male and three females or females and young birds, it's hard to tell. And they, there was literally not any vegetation on the ground where they would normally seek shelter in. And yet they were hopping around searching for food among the, among the charred landscape. And, wow. they'd, and, and what they must have done there, there were lots of little... It's in the sandstone country, lots of little crevices in the rocks. So presumably they've just flown and hidden while wow. the flame came through. But a, a lot of birds, probably more birds die after the flames than die during the flames because there's no food in the weeks and months mm. afterward. This was six weeks after the fire and those birds were still looking healthy. So hopefully they have survived. But those little things are happening everywhere. And if we protect what's what survived if we protect the areas of refuge and if we make sure that these fires don't happen at that extent again then we can bring back the bush but the really scary thing is that that not that this is unprecedented that it's that it's actually the new precedent that this yeah. is what's every couple of years and that's sustainable and we're kind of looking at entire systems collapsing entire species of bird going extinct right across their range it's um it, it's pretty daunting and, and frightening but there are these little green shoots of hope that literally were poking up out of the soil yeah soil. yeah that I, I mean that makes me happy about those fairy wrens but i think what you're saying there about whether it becomes the new precedented that's the thing that really yeah really frightens me um I think we'll have to wrap up in a minute, but just just really quickly on that, um, 
to 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 sort of finish out with with the climate change and the bushfire stuff do you as someone who understands birds so much and is so passionate about nature and the environment do you feel hope um about this is a very big very big question but about uh humans capability of of um not going down that path that we're sort of currently on and if so how do you see that happening um i'm sort of of the belief that in order for climate change to be stopped the whole system that we live under might have to be stopped um and because i just think consumerism and capitalism are too linked to climate change um but a lot of people think that you can do it within capitalism. You just need more renewable energy and stuff like this. What do you have an opinion on that massive question that I'm throwing at you? So, yeah, I guess, you know, I'm, I, I think it's a, a pretty grim prospect we're facing with our future and our natural world. But the, the, the glimmers of hope that I'm clinging to are the, in a way being brought to the surface by, by the COVID crisis in that what we've seen, that, that, that real, I feel like we're at a really critical cultural moment here as a society where we have had this, basically we've had a, our entire society has had a gap year, you know, we've <laughs> just been on pause, everything's silent for a moment and people have had that chance to reflect when they haven't been freaking out. They've been reflecting on what's important to them. And just as we are saying earlier, people are noticing birds in their backyards and noticing birds maybe for the first time or re-becoming aware of them again, that there is this moment where people are looking at what's important to them. And because we've got so much moments of fleeting moments of joy and so much solace from the natural world, particularly from birds. I, I get this sense that there's a, that there's almost a wish in the air that we can do things differently and, and that we, we, we focus on the things that are important. And I, I think we, we're already seeing from our political parties that they are just, um, you know, they, they've turned the, turned the computer off and on again, and they're just reverted back to the original settings. Uh, you know, the, yeah. the set, from the manufacturer, you know, like yeah. it's ignoring everything that's happening, the, 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 the libs and nationals and the coalition of just, just going back to development at all costs, bugger the environment and labor, unfortunately are going back to that. Um, well, we, we kind of care about the environment, but we don't want to be seen to be not caring about the economy. So we're not going to do anything. Yeah. Hey, the parties are reverting to type, but they don't have to. We should have this as a, a teaching moment where we've all gone, you know, geez, it, what's important to us? And I think, I think that for me, I'm clinging on to we, if we can capitalise on this moment, uh, that, that, that feeling, that upwelling of feeling about the, the joy that nature brings us, then, you know, and it, and it does happen in your backyard. That, that's where it's got to kick off. So, you know, that, that's why I'm... That's why I'm sort of championing the whole backyard bird count stuff to because I think this this is where we have our connections. Like a lot of people ask me, how did I get into birds and where do I go birding? And I always say, well, that's a great thing. You don't have to go to Kakadu or, you know, or, or North Queensland to have a great birding experience. And I say, you know, birding is like um, pelvic floor exercises. You can be all the time and nobody notices. <laughs> 
you know, like while, while we've been talking here out the window, I've seen the rainbow lorikeets fly across and yeah. come into the bird bath. And so you're always doing it. And that's where people have their first experience of nature. Usually, I mean, they might be lucky like you and you're up in Cairns or somewhere in, yeah. in the rain and you go, wow, how cool is this? But that often is a trigger moment. But for a lot of people, it's seeing that beautiful rainbow lorikeet in your backyard bird bath or or, you know, having a magpie that comes in and you feed it or, you know, seeing a hawk fly over and, you know, catch a sparrow or something like that. Those yeah. things trigger points. So that's why I think the things like the Aussie Backyard Bird Counter are great ways to kind of tap into that and, and get people, tap into people's innate natural enthusiasm for the natural world and give it a, give it a focus and, and kind of also going back to what we were talking about at the start, being that outsider. When I travelled around Australia doing the Big Twitch and everywhere I've been since, every town has their bird guy or their bird lady. And what's really amazing is how many people think they're the only one. Like they (laughs) think I'm the only birder in the village. (laughs) What I've discovered since I wrote the Big Twitch and started working at BirdLife and been travelling, again, travelling around, giving talks, I think, oh, everyone must have heard me by now. And there'll be people who come to a talk I give or something online and, and that they are literally, it's the first time they've ever heard anyone else who's interested. <laughs> they thought they were the only one. <laughs> and there is that connection of all these people who think they're outsiders, but it's actually your classic silent Australians. As we know from our research at BirdLife, our social research, but also stuff from Griffith Uni on bird feeding and attitudes to birds, like the Griffith Uni research shows that between 30 to 50% of Australians feed birds in their backyards. Wow. And from our research, there's something, you know, there's something like 4 million Australians rate birds as one of the best things in their life. You know, they're not bird nerds. They're not full on twitches or anything, but they love having birds around. That's people self-rating it. Uh, nine out of 10 or 10 out of 10 is how important birds are to their life. So this is the thing. If we can get all these silent majority people realise they're not the only birder in the village, we can uh, actually have a, have a, a voice in shaping how the village is run. Exactly. Yeah. And connect with that feeling and connect with how important birds are and, and all, all the wildlife is. Um, I think that's yeah. such a, beautiful way to finish the discussion on climate change um i think that yeah that that gives me hope what you've said just there i i I should let you go i've taken up so much of your time do you have sean an artist or a creative or anything that you'd like to recommend to the listeners yeah yeah sure i was thinking about this um thought i probably should recommend something bird related this might um you might not have heard of this this artist he's a He's a struggling local muso called Paul Kelly. <laughs> Never heard of him. No, nah, I don't know him. Uh, I don't know him. <laughs> yeah. And I feel, I almost feel like I should be recommending some somebody more obscure that needs a bit of a leg up. But I do want to recommend um, Paul. I've, I've, he's actually got into birds recently through, wow. through poetry and music. And, um, but, but the... But the genuine um, thing that I love, I love in the terms of birds and art. In the last year, he released a, a, a CD, which was a collaboration with um, 
some classical musicians uh, called 13 Ways to Look at Birds. And, you know, I've, I've always liked Paul's music. I've been, been a big fan since I grew up with it. Uh, but there's something about this album that really strikes a, a massive chord with me. It's obviously the subject matter, but, but it's just the, the sound of the album. It's not like any Paul Kelly album you've ever heard before. Um, and there's quite a lot of, he takes poems about birds and puts them to music with his collaborators. Oh, cool. Um, and it's quite classical, really. It's not, uh, it's not pub rock by any means. And, and a lot of it is just Paul doing spoken word over orchestral pieces. Uh, but some of, there's a couple of the songs in particular that just really are a gut punch to me in terms of emotionally for some reason. And there's one really, a really happy little song called The Thorns, which is after a Judith Wright poem. And, and I just love it. It's, so, it's jaunty exactly like a flock of yellow rump thornbills fl- fluttering along. So he's captured that. And also like The Windhover from Gerald Manley, Hopkins is, is an excellent piece. There's some other ones too, which are really impressive. They, they're so, I don't know, they just, um, they, it, it gets to me, that music. Like I, it's sort of that thing where I almost have to like just stop what I'm doing and, and just absorb the song, let it wash over me. So there, there's some, um, yeah, there's a tip. That's, that's uh, honestly, I think that's such a beautiful recommendation. I, and it's funny that you say that about the, the Thornbill song sort of almost feeling like it, it represents the way in which they behave because like he's obviously, I'm, I'm a massive Paul Kelly fan. I haven't heard this album, so I'm really excited. I'm going to listen to it. But he's, I feel like he's so good at doing that with humans, like his songs mm-hmm. about humans you can really feel who the person is that he's talking to, or you can, you can recognize something in yourself that is so it resonates with what he's talking about. So it's, it's kind of crazy that he can do that with birds as well. It's yeah. yeah, He's, he's like a master of emotions and feelings, I I think. Yeah. Well, true. I think um, there is that connection. Interestingly, you you said earlier about the comedy and the, um, and bird watching is, Surprisingly, there's a large number of comedians who are bird watchers. Yeah, and also a lot of artists, like musicians and actors and um, authors and, and visual artists as well. And I think there's potentially something about in there about it. You know, that these are people who observe their world, their human world, and then bird watching take as allows them to take themselves out of the human world, but still observe it's, i think that's exactly what it is i was going to say the exact same thing i think that's i know for me that's exactly what it is for sure yeah yeah it's a really it's it's a cool thing i encourage anyone listening to this podcast to just like give bird watching a bit of a shot i'll let you go now i, I could talk to you for hours um <laughs> maybe one day like in a few months or, or next year sometime i'd love to do a part two and sort of delve even more deeply in and and because there's some more specific stuff that i'd like to ask you about birds if we had more time would you be up for a part two at some stage oh yeah definitely definitely thanks it's john to talk about this and hopefully someday soon we can actually meet up and i know yeah, that, imagine that cool. <laughs> yes. i'd love to do that i'm up for Outside that for of sure. our 5k zone <laughs> yeah exactly um, all right, cool. Thank you so much, Sean. I really appreciate it.
No worries. Thanks Have a, a good one. See you Cheers. later. Bye.